0: Let's pray again. Oh Lord God, how thankful we are that what you have revealed to us in your word establishes our hope, strengthens it, builds it, grows it, and that hope is centered exclusively in Jesus Christ. There is no other God in all the universe like unto you. There's no other God that loved us with the kind of mercy and grace that you have poured out upon us in Christ. Thank you that you are a God who is full of compassion for those who suffer. And the gospel speaks to the suffering that our own sin has created. We are both victim and perpetrator, guilty of all kinds of evil. And those who have suffered under the evil of others, And it leads us in a path of destruction and darkness that seems to grow darker by the day. We repent, Lord God. The nations of the earth are enslaved to sins of all kinds. And we ourselves know the struggle. We ask that you would have mercy upon our nation and that you would turn the hearts of evil people and groups and organizations to you that your spirit would be poured out today convicting of sin in order that repentance would lead to a mighty savior who would transform those who call upon him we are guilty of great pride against you we are great guilty of great immorality Against you and one another. We are guilty of all manner of evil, but in you there is mercy that reaches into the heavens and grace that runs far beyond even the boundaries of our greatest sin. So let the power of that gospel roll through our nation and the nations of the earth today. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive the truth. That you would empower the preached word, that the Spirit Himself would do a work here in us, in our minds, in our hearts, that is so necessary. And then would you bless the preaching and teaching of your word around the world today? Thank you for those who faithfully unfold the word of God in gatherings similar to this. And we pray that you would strengthen them to believe what they proclaim. And that as it is proclaimed, it would result in the salvation of thousands upon thousands. Father, the needs in this assembly alone are great. Our hearts are broken for family members and friends who do not know you. Some who have wandered away from the truth that they have been taught. Others who have rejected it outright. We lift these beloved ones to you. Children, grandchildren, spouses, parents, friends who are dear to our hearts, but who at this moment are in darkness, we ask, Lord God, that you would have mercy for your great name's sake. Let it be a day not only of salvation for their souls, but of restored relationships here, right now, at this moment. We pray that you would put marriages and, and families together again, that you would Bridge the gaps that have opened up between friends and neighbors because of sin. Lord, we are in need of that kind of powerful restoration and transformation. And we pray to that end. Finally, we ask for our mission partners today. And thank you for each one of them. Let your blessing rest upon Dan and Christine Grings as they Continue to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We pray for the Carpenkos as they too labor faithfully in Israel. And pray that your blessing would rest upon uh, these families as they labor in such needy areas. Strengthen their hearts. Meet their needs. Provide for them, Lord, in every way. For Kevin and Misty and Afuku, we ask that your blessing would rest upon them as they gather with their church family for worship in just a few more hours on the island of Oahu. Give them grace today as they are in need of it. Fill them with your spirit so that the words that proceed out of their mouths would be words of life and blessing, of hope and peace. And we ask that you would grow these ministries represented by these dear families, So we thank you on this day, Lord God, for all that you are for us. Thank you for all that Jesus is for us. Thank you for the Spirit who has made his dwelling in us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we return today to Paul's letter to the Romans. It's been several months, actually, since we were there, and I saw this little meme this week, and I thought, yeah, that's about right. Uh, Groundhog Day came and went, and uh, any of you familiar with the church curmudgeon? Uh, He shows up in interesting places, forms of social media and all that, and if the pastor sees his shadow, there will be six more weeks of this sermon series. I can guarantee you we have more than six weeks left in Romans. Uh, That's because we've made it through chapter 11, and we come to chapter 12 today, and that leaves 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, right? So five more chapters, and they are packed. Now there's a shift that is underway right now, and Paul will actually give us a bit of an opportunity today to review where we have come so far, and in the final five chapters he's about to lead us into some of the most powerfully practical truths in all the New Testament. And if you're new with us today, you could go back through sermon archives and such on our website and catch up, it would take you a while to do that. Uh, You could read the first 11 chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, which I would encourage you to do that. But whether you are trying to recall some of the sermon series or you go back and read those first 11 chapters, uh, you will find that they are loaded with truth concerning the righteousness of God. And Paul began by saying in Romans 1 that the righteousness of God has been revealed to us. And it was revealed, first of all, in the condemnation that God uh, brought, the conviction of sin against the whole world, both the really religious Jews who are his special chosen people and then the Gentile nations, most of whom want nothing to do with the God of the Bible. But all are under sin because all have sinned against the God who created them. So he revealed his righteousness in condemnation and conviction of sin. But then Paul moved us and, and the chapter pagination is subset. it's chapter 3 where he begins to describe how God also revealed the righteousness which is by faith. That is the righteousness that he requires for all of us so that we might enter his presence, so that we might dwell with him forever. He's actually provided as a gift. You don't earn this righteousness. You don't achieve it after years of, of, of zealous service in the church. No, you, you receive it by faith, and specifically faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not just a matter of having faith in God, like a sincere, oh, I, think, I think the man upstairs is gonna do right in the end. No, that's not faith that would save you. It's faith in Christ, the Christ he sent as the substitute sacrifice for our sins, the Christ we were singing about in the first half of the service, who rose from the dead victoriously, signaling that death had no more victory over God's people. Faith in Christ saves us. And then he began to, uh, began to unfold for us in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. That kind of all moves powerfully uh, out of those truths into some really rich truths saying Ultimately, that we are adopted by God. We really are true sons of the living God. And part of the verification of that is he sent the Spirit to dwell in our hearts. And chapter 8 is one of the most powerful uh, and even compact chapters regarding the presence of the Spirit and his ministry in all of the scriptures. And then finally, just before the holiday season rolled around, we were at 9, 10, and 11 and, and looking at the staggering mercy of God. And though all deserve sin and though he has the absolute right to take someone like Pharaoh, remember that was the example, even harden his heart while Pharaoh hardened his heart uh, and to raise him up to accomplish greater purposes, he still calls Jews and Gentiles alike to turn in faith. And so chapter 11 reaches that mighty climax that pushes Paul to pen those final words that are recorded in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He just breaks out in doxology, breaks out in a song of praise. And so now we come to chapter 12 where there is a shift. And as one of my former teachers uh, liked to say, there's more Principial teaching in the following chapters than there is prescription and prohibition. Principial teaching means that there are some practical uh, applications for us, truths to live by, that flow right out of the first 11 chapters. He went on to say, taking those principles and knowing how to apply them to the present age uh, is, is the point. These verses are here for developing discernment about personal separation from the world and consecration to God. As a matter of fact, when we begin to work through Romans 12, it's just going to be one rapid fire uh, word of instruction after another. And as much as I want to slow down and take about two months in Romans 12, I think we're going to pack it into just three messages. And then 13, we'll probably compress that into one, maybe two. That'll have some really good stuff. We already preached through the series on the conscience, uh, what was that, two years ago now? And so we handled Romans 14 and 15. I won't go quite as deep, but... You know, we don't want to rush through the really good stuff. And then that pushes us into, deeper into 15, uh, which will have some implications even for summer outreach and mission right here in Utah and mission around the world. So we've got some great stuff ahead of us. And I'm thankful we can return today. Would you follow along as I read these first two verses of Romans 12? It's on the screen there for you. I know many of you have already been reading it, and that's okay. Uh, but set your heart on it again here And listen to the words of Paul. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Did you catch that powerful appeal that Paul makes? It's an appeal from God's mercies. Look again at verse 1 with me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And, and he's, he is employing terminology that says, look, I'm, I'm asking you something earnestly. So it's a little bit of a, please pay attention to this. And, and the word therefore is critical. It, it connects us back to chapter 11. And so if you haven't read through this recently, it would be good to refresh your mind and heart on some of the things that have preceded it. But Paul wants to show that the exhortations of chapter 12 and beyond are built firmly on the theology of chapters 1 through 11. And then he says, therefore, by the mercies of God. The mercies of God refer to his compassion and pity for us And there's a specific point of application here in Romans. The the pity and compassion that stirred within him has to do with the fact that we're dead in our sins. The most desperate of conditions. We're not in need of a little pat on the back, a little word of encouragement from God to get through life. No, we need to be rescued. And that's what the first 11 chapters recounted for us. I want you to think for a moment about some of the specific points of mercy, where his pity and compassion overflowed toward us. It's God's mercy that sent Jesus to the cross as the sacrifice for our sins while we were still sinners. It is God's mercy that opened your eyes and my eyes to see, first, the magnitude of our sin, because we are always wanting to lawyer up and act like, well, it's not that bad, or I didn't really mean it, or I'm not as bad as you are. But God says, I- I'm going to stop every mouth. I'm just going to shut it down, and so the whole world will be guilty before me. But until we are willing to own our guilt, we're not really willing to receive the mercy that we're in desperate need of. And it's the mercy of God that brought us to that place of conviction God's mercy that crucified the old you with Christ. Do you remember some of those passages? Isn't that good news that the old you died with Jesus and new you came out of the grave? What mercy? It's mercy that God has forgiven us all our sins and legally declared us to be perfectly righteous for Christ's sake, a standing that you and I could never achieve on our own. It's mercy that's delivered us from the slavery of sin. It's mercy that we've been adopted into his household. It's mercy that he's bestowed on us all the benefits and privileges of, of eternal sonship with Jesus. It's God's mercy that the Spirit has come to dwell in our hearts, who not only bears witness with our spirits that we are, in fact, the children of the Most High God, but the Spirit who prays for us when we don't know how we ought to pray. It's a, it's a mercy of God As Romans 8 tells us, that he takes the entirety of our lives, both the good and the bad, and works it all together according to his sovereign purposes for our good. So with Paul, we too can say, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, how do we respond to that kind of mercy? Well, that's where we move in the second place to what Paul describes as the reasonable response. The reasonable reasonable response to God's mercies is, first of all, that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Present yourself or surrender yourself fully to God. The second thing he will tell us is that you need to resist the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed. And then finally, renew your mind. Continue in this process of transformation. Now let's go back and look at each of those individually for just a few moments. First of all, present your life fully to God. That has the idea of, of surrendering yourself. Go back to chapter one of Romans with me for just a minute. I, I was going to suggest that you just recall, but I think it'll be more helpful, honestly, if you look at some of these very verses that I'm talking about because when God first began to reveal his righteousness and, and he hung it like a backdrop uh, that, that our lives might be evaluated and he began to, to describe the kinds of, of sin that we were immersed in and guilty of look at verse 24 the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves he refers to the dishonoring of their bodies verse 25 because they exchanged the truth about god for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator so there was something going on pre-salvation pre-christ of a bodily expression Bodies that were given over to dishonorable living. Verse 26, so God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. And those dishonorable passions, that debased mind, were were expressing themselves through our bodies. And there's a long list of of sins in that particular passage that describe the kinds of things that God is talking about. You can look at that a little more closely in verse 29, but it's everything from words to deeds to attitudes. Well, there's been such a powerful transformation that God has worked through Christ and through the cross, through this salvation that he's now making this appeal to us, saying, you've you've experienced the mercies of God, and I am calling you to present yourself as a sacrifice. Now there are three words actually that describe the, the kind of sacrifice he's looking for, and the first is living, which is a little bit of a paradox, isn't it? All through the Old Testament, every sacrifice that was offered, at least of, a, of an animal kind, was a dead sacrifice at the time it was presented. And there are grain offerings and, and other kinds of thank offerings that didn't include animals dying, but this would have been uh, a very new thought particularly for Jewish people. And back in Romans 6, verse 13, Paul had said, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Life is what now characterizes the people of God. We're not dead in sins. We're not walking around as some kind of spiritual zombie in some you know, in-between state. No, we've been raised with Christ to a, an entirely new life. And so now we offer ourselves to God as a sacrifice, and that is the, the whole you, everything that, you, that makes you you, from the material to the immaterial part of you. And you offer it to God as a living sacrifice. If God's not going to put you to death in some kind of you know, new spiritual altar, that means that his intention would be to use your life and Paul's going to head that direction here at the end of this verse to describe it as a form of worship. You know, there are a lot of people who think that if they surrender themselves fully to God, life as they know it comes to an end. The reality is, when you surrender yourself fully to God, that's when you really begin to live. It's our adversary, the devil, who has so deceived the world and, and desires to lead us to a path of destruction. And Jesus even said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy that's the destination he's trying to lead some of you on today, and, and he's duped you into thinking that if you really surrender yourself to Jesus and begin to follow him, well, all the fun's done, and you know the profitability goes out the window, and you know my life will end. You you have no idea what you what you will forfeit. This is the true life. So we offer ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. The second word is holy. And there are two components of the word holy that I want you to think about today. First of all, it is a term that means to be set apart. And in the context, it's very obvious what we're set apart from, but in setting us apart from things, we're also being set apart to something, or more importantly, to someone. And and even this word, this concept of holiness captures the heart of the gospel because the heart of the gospel is you repent, you turn away from your sin and self and pride, trying to be your own king, and you turn to God. Well, that movement of turning away from something to something is what this term holiness really speaks about. If you, if you were to th- go back to chapter 1 of Romans and think through some of the particular sins that the Lord uh, cataloged there, Shameless acts is one of the terms that are used to describe it, but it's all kinds of unrighteousness, evil, greed, malicious acts, envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness, gossip, slander, slander hatred, insolence, pride, boasting, evil, and disobedience to parents, and more. Why, why would any of us hang on to that? Sometimes in a strange way because those things actually create a sense of, of place or a sense of well-being, a sense of goodness. You know, when you've been wronged, it feels good to talk about the person who wronged you. God calls some of that conversation gossip, slander. feels good to put other people down sometimes. feels good to even participate in particular kinds of sin because it gives you a little temporary buzz, a little hit, a little feeling of euphoria. But it always, always leads to death. And God says, no, I've rescued you from that. I don't want you to be captive any longer, and you're not a slave, so don't live like a slave any longer. Don't choose darkness when I offer you light. Don't choose that kind of evil when I, choose you, when, when I offer you my love. He's calling us to present our bodies as a holy sacrifice. It ties into where we were even last week as we conclude that little four-part series and part of the hope of heaven Uh, as, As John told us in 1 John 3, everyone who has this hope purifies himself, even as he is pure. There's a third characteristic, acceptable to God, a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. And that has to do with just living your life in a way that brings pleasure, satisfaction, joy to God himself. We used to live as those who were pleasing self. That's what Romans 1 was all about telling God to take a hike. I'm going to live my life the way I want. I'm going to be in relationship with whomever I want. I'm going to pursue the things I want. I'm going to seek my own desires and fulfill my own passions. And God says, no longer. You're in relationship with me. And God's mercy compels us to offer our lives to him as a pleasing sacrifice. Now look at what Paul says next. That's your spiritual worship. There's some challenging terms here. Uh, they're, they're kind of unique to this passage. You can't go find a whole bunch of other references in the New Testament where uh, Paul's particular terminology is used. That doesn't mean we can't understand what Paul is writing. It just makes it a little more challenging. And so if you start comparing even some of our English translations, you will find some little variations. Uh, if some, anybody here reading the King James? or the Net Bible, okay, a couple of hands go up, Uh, those two English uh, translations use the words reasonable service. Uh, I've already read the ESV, but if you're reading the New American Standard, you will read the words spiritual service of worship. And the NIV uses the phrase true and proper worship. What's going on? Well, all of those are trying to capture the, the heart of the terminology that Paul is using here because it does have reference to what is rational, reasonable. It has reference to what is genuine and true. And that little term worship, I mean, we all know that that has spiritual overtones and and point of focus, right? I mean, that's what we're doing here this morning. It's good and right to refer to Sunday morning service here or many other churches as a worship service because we're setting our hearts on the God who created us and redeemed us. So the terms here have to do with that kind of personal service and worship. What's the point? Well, God is calling us to offer all that we are because of his bountiful mercy Um, in a life that would ultimately look like or should be thought of as worship. Do you think of every aspect of your life as an opportunity to worship the God who rescued you? The human tendency is to compartmentalize it, isn't it? So that's why we kind of have our Sunday routine, and then we have our Monday through Friday routine, and some people have a Saturday routine. And, And we get a little protective of our routines, don't we? Don't mess with my stuff. And God says, I want it all. Now, he's not saying, you know, you people really should be in church seven days a week, all day, every day, you know, roll out some sleeping bags at night, stay in, you know, the house of worship. No, your life is actually the temple of the most high God. And so he, by his presence, begins to sanctify everything you and I do, from our work to our recreation to formal worship gatherings like this. A lot of people want to negotiate with God, though. God, I'll give you my Sunday morning. But, you know, I'm sure going to keep Sunday afternoon because, you know, football. And, um, and I got to work. You know, I got to put food on the table, so, so I'm going to keep that piece, too. And, yeah, you know, there is that men's breakfast Saturday morning, and you know, I guess I'll, you know, I'll toss that one back to you, God. And then somebody calls out of the blue, hey, could you come help? And you're like, oh, that's Right. Jesus does want us to love one another. Okay. So we, we're always in this negotiation with God, trying to hold on to pieces of our lives. And he's saying, and he's not saying, you know, I'm going to force you into some kind of, you know, terrible slavery that, that you can't find any joy or blessing. And no, he's actually saying, give it all to me and let me sanctify it and bless it. And so when you present your life to God, you're not only honoring him for the mercy that he has shown you. But you're positioning yourself then to, to find that every little second of life matters. This is the kind of thinking, I'm, I, I see a number of students out here, and I get it, I'm, I'm really thankful I'm not in school full-time anymore, particularly those years where I had to take stuff that was required and I really wasn't interested in it. You know, and so the question for some of you students is, can, can, can Jesus sanctify your history class? And the answer is yeah, it's right in part right here. Say, but I don't like history. He knows that, but you can still study and and give yourself to that as an act of worship, submitting to him all of life. Some of you are working either, maybe it's a a job in its entirety right now. You're like, this is terrible. Hate it. But you know what? You can offer that back to the Lord and say, God, you and I both know I'd prefer to work somewhere else, certainly for more money, right? Because you can never have too much money. Um, At least that's how most of us think, Right? Um, but until then, God, I'm gonna worship you even in this difficult time. And, and for those of you whose lives are really good and you're working the dream job or you're studying stuff that they're like, this is, this is what my life is about, you need to remember that life is not good because you're in a dream position. Life is good because you're in right relationship with God. It's all his. All of life is worship. There's a second thought here, though, and that is to resist the world. Do not be conformed to the world. Now, what is the world? What is worldliness? You could think of this actually as the age in which we live. The world is not what you know, exists outside the walls of the church or outside the walls of your little safe you know, household. No, the world is actually a system as it's been formally defined and this is just one of many definitions that are out there. The system of practices and standards associated with secular society without reference to any demands or requirements of God. A friend of mine, a a pastor and teacher that I've known through the years, I asked him one time, how would you define worldliness? And this was gold. I was like, stop right there. I have to write this down. Worldliness, his answer, worldliness is living a life as if there is no God in which man becomes both the resource for life and the goal of life. I thought that may be the one, uh, the best one sentence definition of worldliness I've ever heard. Living a life as if there is no God, in which man becomes both the resource for life and the goal of life. See, that's what's in view here when Paul says don't be conformed to the world. Now, that that term um, conform actually has to do with being shaped by the world, and specifically that your behavior, your life would actually be shaped by this world system. One author writes, stop being molded by the external and fleeting fashions of this age, and then the rest of the verse, but undergo a deep inner change. That's the transformation we'll come to in just a moment. It's really good for us to spend time thinking, how does the world seek to force you and me into its mold? And it's happening everywhere in every way. How's it happening to you? And are you aware of it? Do you have some sense of it? You know, there's a a newer marketing strategy, at least newer to this present generation. I I suppose there have always been but that's taking on an interesting life and development and I learned this week that there are mega influencers and that these these are the ones who have more than one million followers on at least one social platform then you have the tier below them the macro influencers and they have followers between 40,000 and 1 million micro influencers have between 1,000 and 40,000 and then nano influencers but you know what makes nano-influencers unique and even desirable from a marketing standpoint? They are, they are typically experts in a specialized field. And so while most of them have fewer than 1,000 followers, their, th- their followers are really loyal, really engaged, really in tune. And so when the expert says, you should do, you should buy, you should have, even that, you know, 950 following, fo- followers that they have are like, done. We will get it. So you can see if you've got a product that that you want to move out of your warehouse and turn into revenue, you want to go find even the nano-influencer. Well, these influencers would be an example of some of the forces at work in our world today that try to mold you and shape you, particularly your thinking and your buying habits. That's just one way. This is also part of the reason that our entertainment and information so- sources are so critical as followers of Jesus. A lot of us are, are unwittingly, if not just foolishly, letting the, 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 the ideas and philosophy produced in Hollywood, whether it be through just a little, you know, 23-minute sitcom that you want to watch for half an hour a week or the full-length feature movies where there are all types of godless philosophies being foisted upon you and, and if you are not actively fighting that, resisting it, you will be shaped by it. That's actually why some of you compare the word of God to popular philosophies today and go, this is a little outdated. You know, Paul just didn't really understand human sexuality, so of course he would just say, one man, one woman in marriage, but pff, nobody believes that in our generation. Uh, yeah, actually, a lot of us do believe that because we believe that God, who never changes, has unchangeable truth. And he, He's taught us there is a way of blessing for human sexuality. How are we being forced into the mold of the world? The spirit of the age will quickly shape your mind, your heart, your values. And I say this in, in all sincerity and make an appeal to you, but if you are swimming, think of, think of a body of water. If you are swimming day by day in, in that kind of worldly entertainment, information, lifestyle, uh, and then expecting to come to church and take a quick shower, if you will, if, if you could liken the preaching and teaching of God's word to like a half hour shower, but you've been swimming all week to the point where, you know, to, to create a... Uh, another metaphor, like your fingers and toes have pruned up. You know, when you were a kid, did you stay in the bathtub too long? And your mom would come in and say, oh, look at your fingers, they're prunes. And you're like, what? Some of your souls are pruned up with the world's philosophy. And you think you can slip in here on a Sunday and kind of take a quick shower or splash, you know, a little of the word on you and it'll transform you. It won't. Because God's word is not the dominant influence for you. You're being forced into the mold of the world. Now there's a third thing that Paul says is really critical, and That as we renew our minds. Look at the next phrase. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the, the term transformed has to do with um, a metamorphosis, has to do with changing the essential form or nature of something. I just ran out of time this week Uh, To prepare this, but when I say metamorphosis, many of you already thought of the change that a butterfly undergoes. Uh, Any of you ever, you know, catch a little caterpillar or even order them and put them in a, you know, a jar or tank or something like that, and then watch them go through that process with your kids? We did that once upon a time because Kristen took time for special things like that. Me, I was always like, oh, get in biology. We don't need to do that, but how many of you have done that? It is the coolest thing, and I'll I'll never forget how, you know, we watched the caterpillar eat the whatever kind of leaves we were supposed to, and then suddenly the caterpillar was full, and he spins his little chrysalis, and he goes to sleep for a while, and, you know, little kids will look every day. When is the butterfly coming? Where's the butterfly? And then, lo and behold, it emerges. And, and, I mean, you just say, how in the world did that worm turn into that well, spiritually speaking, God is at work transforming us so that, you know, if, if we were in his, you know, divine jar, so to speak, and, and other observers were watching, they're just as amazed. Ephesians 2 actually talks about that, or uh, 3, maybe it's 3, that through the church, God is showing the principalities and powers his infinite wisdom. So there really are those angelic heavenly being, witnesses who look at this and go, how in the world did Danny Brooks go from that to that? And God just steps back and says, because I'm God. And I'm full of mercy. So there's this metamorphosis that is underway. We're to be transformed. But look at the specific way, the renewal of your mind. And and Paul's using terminology that indicates it's a continual process, You don't just show up one Sunday and get the transformation pill and it's done. Now, this is is a lifelong thing. It's a continual process of renovation, but in particular of your mind. And that has to do with the the full complex of beliefs and values and dispositions that ultimately result in the way we live our lives. Go back to Romans 8 for a moment. Uh, Before we get to Romans 8, verses 5 and 6, again, tying it back to Romans 1, uh, Paul had said in verse 28 that there was a time where our minds were described with the word debased, debased mind. And so by the Lord's work of salvation, he is establishing a pure mind in order that we might serve the law of God with our minds. That's chapter 7. Now in chapter 8, verse 5, he says those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's, that's natural. That's default mode. You don't have to try to do that. You were born ready to do that. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So there's a totally new mindset that the Lord is creating by Christ, by the gospel, by our salvation. And now he calls us to enter in and participate, to submit our minds to this. But he's not done there yet. No, he says that by testing you may discern And we needed four English words in that phrase to capture the one little term that Paul first wrote that in. By testing may discern. That has to do with judging what is right. Judging what is right or commendable. So we submit ourselves to this and then we we begin this lifelong process of practicing, learning the genuineness of the things that God has set before us. You know, you can read labels and reviews on Amazon before you make a purchase all day long. You can watch commercials and infomercials about the advantages and even hear first, uh, first-person testimonies, you know, who bear witness to the power of this particular little pill or this gadget that you need. But until you actually try the product for yourself, you can't say that you have tested with a view of discerning, is it so or is it not? I don't want to stop this thought there because you and I are not the ultimate judges of what is right or commendable in God's sight. And your experience will not be the final arbiter of God's truth either. No, God has actually given us his word and the indwelling spirit and those two never contradict one another. And so as we exercise our faith with our Bibles open and in submission to the spirit of God, he will actually prove to us the things that Paul is going to touch on regarding the will of God last phrase what is the will of God well Paul describes it here with three terms what is good that is what is of moral excellence number two what's acceptable that is again we're back to the idea of what what gives God pleasure what what brings joy to his heart and then number three what is perfect or complete that's the end to which we are seeking to live our lives so we're called to resist the spirit of the age, not be, not be shoved into its mold of thinking, living, speaking, working, all of those things. No, we're called to resist the spirit of age, to be renewed in our minds so that progressively we are proving that the will of God is all of those things that have just been described for us and ultimately becoming like Jesus. Paul doesn't say it here, but I think it's implied very clearly. So what does God want from you? In summary, well, he wants you to present your life fully to him. He wants you to take everything that you're passionate about, everything that you're curious about, everything even that you say is a part of my life, but I don't really like that right now, and just say, God, here I am and here all that is. Have you ever done that? In response to the mercies of God, have you ever presented your life saying, God, here it is, the sacrifice that you've asked for? Number two, we resist the world. It's interesting to me how, and, and this was not like a, an intentional, I gotta find a way to preach these things, or Matt, um, but we've been in several passages where I, uh, the Lord has really impressed, at least on my heart through these, pursue holiness. I've been doing some evaluating, even, even of some of my entertainment choices. There's a particular sitcom that I'm just like, nope, not anymore. And I would encourage you, to evaluate some of, some of those simple choices, even things that you may have taken for granted. Maybe you, maybe you even said it before God long ago, but it never hurts you to go back and say, Lord, are we still okay here? Does this honor you? Does this please you? Is this shaping me, or shoving me into the mold of the world? Or is this actually helping me to, and this is the third thing, renew my mind? And that's where most of us could be much more proactive in renewing our minds in God's truth. What are you swimming in? You swim in the beauty and deeps of God's truth. That'll make a difference. And God does all of this, first of all, because he has been so merciful, but because he's not done. And he really does want to take you from a, at best, on your best day, you were an odd and curious caterpillar of a person. Some of those caterpillars are downright scary, aren't they, right? Like, get that thing away from me. He wants to take you from a sin-deadened, darkened, enslaved pre- creature who evoked pity and transform you to one day where you stand next to his son and everybody goes, wow, she really does look like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father. Your word is rich because you are rich. You're rich in mercy, you're rich in grace, you're rich in love. You are awesome in your holiness, awesome in righteousness, awesome in your justice, awesome in truth. Would you please lead us for your namesake that we may turn our backs on the world and turn to you. Now, Father, thank you for the time together. Thank you that you are powerful enough and loving enough to transform us totally. So continue that good work today. Continue that by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.